0: Hello and welcome to Emergency on Planet Earth with me, Mary Cray. Toxic chemicals. When we hear that, most of us picture nuclear reactors, test tubes in laboratories or three-eyed fish. But when we began hearing about the potential for toxic chemicals in toys, pans, sofas and cosmetics, it raised some alarm bells. Chemicals are everywhere in modern life from the furniture and carpets in our homes to the clothes we wear the medicines we take and the food we eat but with around 80,000 chemicals used in the UK and 2,000 new chemicals coming onto the market each year is this cocktail of chemicals putting us and our children at risk in this episode we'll explain the risk of toxic chemicals to human health and the environment. We'll look at the challenges of regulating toxic chemicals in everyday items from Rubik's cubes to jewelry and why we are the only country in the European Union to soak our furniture in flame retardants. I spoke first with Dr. Michael Warhurst, Executive Director of ChemTrust. I started by asking him about the risks to us in our everyday life from toxic chemicals.
1: The problem we have is that we have tens of thousands of chemicals in millions of products. And you might think, some people would say, oh well surely if it's used in our in a sofa then it must have been shown to be safe. But unfortunately that's not the truth. What we've seen over the decades is that one chemical is identified as being a problem. For example it accumulates in our bodies, accumulates in, in uh, polar bears. Gradually there's a fight to get that chemical taken off the market, that happens and all that happens really is the chemical industry brings in another chemical that's almost exactly the same. So
0: these are called regrettable substitutes? Yes, regrettable
1: substitutes where you're essentially carrying on with the same game but every time you've got to start over and regulating it. And the EU has tried to improve the process, bringing in something called REACH. And in some ways, that process is just really highlighting this again. So that's reach the all... European
0: Registration, Evaluation and Authorisation of Chemicals.
1: Yes, exactly, which is organised by the European Chemicals Agency in Helsinki. And again, you know, they find a chemical that's a problem. They spend years trying to get rid of it. And, and immediately, other chemicals come in and reach... In many ways, you can see across a whole range of chemicals. So you see it with these, what's called the brominated flame retardants, which are in furniture and electronics.
0: What are the risks from them?
1: Some of them have been shown to have effects on hormone systems, effects on brain development. And we know that some chemicals are very well known for effects on brain development, like lead, for example, that's been known for a long time. And we have a lot of other chemicals where there's initial signs of evidence, but it's very difficult to prove this because you're dealing in the human brain is extremely complicated. It doesn't fully develop until early 20s. And you're dealing in general with chemicals. You're saying, well, you know, we were exposed in the womb to this chemical What's the effect 30 years later? And we, can't we can't do no. any experiments. We
0: can't do experiments on
2: ourselves, can you we? You can
1: only usually do the experiments on workers, because sometimes workers have high enough levels of exposure for long enough that you can actually say, well, this is it. And with something like asbestos, that's how you got the data. You could take the workers and you could see the impact. But that's okay. unusual.
0: So we have an ever-expanding list of chemicals in use, and the regulations aren't able to keep up. It's often only when we look at workers' health over the long term, people who are exposed to these chemicals in big quantities every day, that we end up identifying and naming the risks. Our next guest is Anna Steck, Professor of Fire Chemistry and Toxicity at the University of Central Lancashire. She is trying to understand the risks faced by firefighters who are exposed to toxic smoke through their jobs. And so, Anna, what have you found in your studies?
2: So, generally, within general studies, not necessarily focusing on firefighters, we've got some concerns of fire retardants. Um, typically fire retardants used in furniture we know that they're leaching out on a natural kind of occurrence within the aging of furniture. How are they leaching out? Uh, they leaching. Uh, there is one studies that are showing you that uh, they are very commonly found in the household dust. So we're breathing uh, these things yes. in? Yep. So it's on
0: when you buy it new and then it leaches off into your home it goes into your carpet, your dust yep. and into your body but it's no longer an effective uh, fire Yes, proofing.
2: so most of the people kind of from the statistics who are dying in fires, they're dying from inhalation of fire effluents, usually after having a cigarette in a hand when it's starting kind of ignition or kind of after alcohol consumption. And as soon as you've got that one on all the older furniture, all the older furniture is not protecting you from kind of getting that effect and spreading the fire.
0: Every home in the UK contains several kilos of flame retardants. They're found in our sofas, our sleeping bags, babies' pushchairs, and cot mattresses. These flame retardants aren't used elsewhere in the world. Countries have either phased them out or banned them completely. So why do we still apply them here in the UK? I put this question to Michael and Anna, who explained the UK's approach to flame retardants and how they're regulated.
1: Obviously everyone thinks that fire is important to prevent and so there are all sorts of things that have been done. Smoke alarms have been very, very successful, for example. But one of the routes that went down in the UK and in California was this idea that what we would try and do is to make the fabrics resist an actual open flame So it's not just a smoldering cigarette, which is one thing, but an open flame. And this is quite difficult to achieve. So a test was devised, and this test basically, because of the way it's very difficult to do that job, then you end up using lots of chemicals, you lose the brominated or the organophosphate flame retardants. What has happened since then is that we know more about the danger of the chemicals, in California, they've moved away from that and said, well, actually, we don't need an open flame test. We'll just use a smolder test and we'll make sure that any, if there are flame retardants, they will be disclosed to consumers. So California has done that. The UK has had a debate in recent years which, where the government really hasn't made any progress in that. We know there is a big industry lobby behind this because it's not just about the chemicals, but this means that furniture from the rest of Europe can't routinely be sold in Britain, they have to make the extra effort to actually pass these tests.
0: It's a regulatory barrier to It's trade. a regulatory
1: barrier. And the amazing thing is that the government a few years ago actually showed that the test doesn't work. That can still actually burn with a flame, because the test doesn't reflect how the actual furniture is. So there was work done by the UK government to improve this test, but then this wasn't brought in, it appears, because of industry lobbying from the people who make the chemicals, the people who apply the chemicals to the fabric. and the furniture industry in general. So there's a
0: huge industry lobby around this Anna.
2: Yes, but then additionally to that is that we found it that use of fire retardants, especially gas phase fire retardants which are working in a gas phase in the in the smoke, they actually increasing fire toxicity once they're present there. So
0: there's a paradox which is that the UK is unique in Europe and now probably in the world in yeah. applying a flame retardant yes. which makes Fire smoke more deadly.
2: Yes, so more toxic, more dangerous, and there are more toxicants that are released, which will they have an effect not only on a human but also environment.
0: What are those toxicants that affect the humans?
2: So typically, we we know that if there is furniture contains polyurethane foam, most commonly, which is nitrogen containing fuel, so hydrogen cyanide will be released, and we found that fire retardants are used in that furniture will increase by a factor of five, ten times higher. Concentrations of hydrogen cyanide in a fire, that it would be without fire retardant. And also for the chronic toxicants long term, we know that there will be increased concentrations of carcinogens. IKEA are perhaps the best known furniture company
0: in the world. Some estimates say that one in five babies in the European Union are conceived on an IKEA mattress. I spoke to Therese Lilliblack product requirements manager at IKEA about their view of the UK's regulation for flame retardants in furniture. I started by asking her why IKEA doesn't support the UK's furniture regulations.
3: Well we see that it is possible to provide our customers with products that are safe both from a fire safety perspective, but also a chemical safety perspective. And we would like to see a bit more balanced approach uh, here in the UK when it comes to the the fire regulation.
0: Now, we heard from the furniture industry and uh, furniture makers, you know, this is a very old. Standard. It's 30 years old and, and the world seems yeah. to have moved on. And Britain and Ireland still seem to uh, retain this yeah. regulation, which is a basically about soaking mm. our foams and in our sofas, in our children's mm. cot mattresses and pram mattresses with flame retardants. Mm. What is IKEA's concern about that?
3: Yes, we would like to take um, or to have a proactive approach, and we always try to do that. And we want to avoid any harmful chemicals in our products, and therefore, we would prefer not to have any flame retardants in our products. So, that is a concern that we have. Um, and as it is right now, the furniture regulation. Uh, leaves no other choice than adding the chemical flame retardants.
0: You have a precautionary approach, you've got a a, a list of restricted or banned substances based on national and international regulations and and on health and environmental concerns. Mm. Are there any substances on that list which are appearing in products in the UK because of our our different regulatory systems?
3: What we do is that we have a requirement that our supplier need to uh, ask for an approval before they add any chemical flame retardant. So, for the UK market, we have given approval to use some chemical flame retardants in order to fulfil the requirements in UK. Mm.
0: Yeah. And how do you get around this issue of mm. uh, fire safety mm. in the products that you sell on the European market? Mm. Are they designed differently, do they contain different Mm. um, materials?
3: I would say that the materials are uh, more or less the same um, and we are very careful when it comes to what materials we choose in our products and how we combine the materials. Everything this uh, together makes us have safe products from a fire and a chemical perspective in the rest of Europe.
0: Some of these flame retardants which IKEA uh, trying to avoid contain cancer-causing substances. That's alarming. I asked Professor Steck what she has found in her research investigating the potential presence of toxic contaminants at the site of the Grenfell Tower fire. I started by asking Anna how the fire might have affected the soils around the building and what action needs to be taken. Tell us about how that is affecting the soil because you've conducted tests on the site around the Grenfell Tower.
2: Yes, so we've taken number of soil samples just to see if there is any contamination following the Grenfell Tower fire. And we focus on those toxins, particularly from the insulation materials, which interestingly enough, they also contain brominated and phosphorus flame retardants, similar to the furniture, and we found them in the soil. We found them also in people's flats.
0: Living nearby? Uh,
2: living nearby, um, simply as the fact that insulation materials that burned, they're very light, they can travel for very long distances, and then they can also be absorbed in particulates, and then decompose on people's flats, balconies. And then stay for a very long time
0: and what recommendations have you made to government and local government as a result of your findings
2: there are two recommendations one would be for building regulations as well as furniture regulations if we introduce fire toxicity regulation then it's a better restriction of what chemicals are used and how they're contributing overall to fire toxicity obviously revision of polystyrene furniture that there were quite good suggestions in 2014 consultation which were not follow up and then overall, for following my studies on the Grenfell, it's kind of very urgent health screening of Grenfell community and emergency responders for fire effluent presence, as well as indoor testing within very close neighbourhood of the Grenfell Tower.
0: And as far as you're aware, has Public Health England conducted that urgent health screening? None of it. It seems astonishing that two years after the Grenfell Tower fire, testing on the soils around the site are only just getting started. This raises the question of how toxic chemicals get into the plastics we store our food in or the toys that our children play with. I spoke with Dr Duncan Campbell about the difficulty and the costs of testing for these potentially harmful substances. Duncan, you're a public analyst, you're part of the network of scientific professionals across the UK that protects us as consumers, and we first met during the horse meat scandal, which was perhaps the largest mass fraud perpetuated against the British public in the last certainly 10 or 20 years. What concerns do you have about trading standards authorities who are really on the front line and councils who've seen their budgets cut on all of this testing work?
4: Well, as you say, budgets have been cut, particularly in trading standards, and that affects their ability to enforce the whole raft of legislation that they deal with. So, not just food, as in the case of horse meat, but also in the broader sense of consumer safety, be that furnishings, cosmetics, toys, and so on. And as their resources decrease, it's a a situation where the staff aren't there on the ground visiting retail premises to inspect, to, to look at things that don't look right. Take samples, and then obviously there's the cost of having samples analysed by public analysts. How much does it cost to analyse a sample? Well, that that would depend on the testing. So if you're looking at a simple um, physical test, of say pulling an eye out of a teddy bear, a very not uh, sim- oh, very painful. Not not for the teddy bear. But cl- clearly, a teddy bear's eye is, is a potentially a choking hazard, and yeah. small children have a very strong grip so mm. there is a test which i used to conduct myself when i worked in hull um, <laughs> ripping
0: did, the eyes out of oh
4: teddy yes i was not popular with the office staff i <laughs> have to say but that might be a, a few tens of pounds clearly if you're looking at analysis for a, a range of organic compounds as you might have with, with fire retardants or, or other um, toxic chemicals it could be hundreds perhaps even into thousands of pounds and um, because of the broad range of analysis required so a cash trap local authority is going to think twice about spending money on that analysis, particularly if there is no immediate perceived risk to, put to public safety. And one of the knock-on effects of the lack of spending by trading standards um, and, and other but- bits of local authorities with public analysts is that the number of laboratories uh, employing public analysts is decreasing, and also the expertise and range of analyses that we can offer is decreasing.
0: Online shopping has boomed, but this opens up real challenges for the regulation of what is in the things that we buy online. During our inquiry, we've heard about children's toys like slime and putty containing illegally high levels of boron. We've heard about skin whitening creams with illegal levels of mercury in them and children's jewellery containing 1,600 times the safe levels of cadmium, another heavy metal. Michael Warhurst also told me about an imitation Rubik's Cube, and the lack of proactive screening of these products from councils, and why toxic chemicals hit the poorest hardest.
1: There was a test being done by an international group of NGOs called IPEN who work on the, the problem of trying to get global controls on some mm. of the worst chemicals. And they did this schema. they said, right, we want, we want, it's not the Rubik's cube, but it's the cheap imitation Rubik's cube. And black plastic, you can hide lots of things. And what they were aware of was that you would get plastic from electronics, from computers, going outside the EU, then ending up coming back in inside other black plastic. And so I went to a a shop in Islington, which has since closed, and it was just a general, you know, cheap shop. And I bought uh, two Rubik's Cubes and they were tested and they both had one of these brominated flame retardants that was banned. And I think this really emphasises the fact that, you know, there isn't, we had to put someone from the government saying they have a risk-based approach to protection. You know, you can guarantee everywhere you go, you have cheap shops, you have markets, with lots of products, some of them will be skin lightening creams, some of them will be toys. If you go into one of them, you're going to find some illegal stuff, almost invariably. So to say that, whatever, I think it's Southwark did tests on skin lightening creams, to try and say, oh, well, that's because Southwark has a problem and, you know, X other London borough or city doesn't, New, um, it's, just, doesn't, it's yeah. just not true. I mean, Southwark decided to do it and I think they got a bit of government money to help them. But, you know, that's, it's not a system. It's not a system that's protecting the public. And you end up with this very strange situation where worker protection on chemicals, that's health and safety executive. Environmental Protection is the Environment Agency. They've only got two or three people in their key team, but at least they can say, well, we think this is a problem, we'll investigate it. And consumers has just been local authorities. And you know that can't and work. Denuded. And it They've lost yeah.
0: half of their local trading yeah. standards. I mean, even,
1: even without the cuts, it's a bizarre way to do it. Because again, it's one of the reasons why the UK hasn't put so much into this EU system called RAPEX, because if you're sitting in a local authority, you're less likely to take something up to the EU level because once something's in this RAPEX system people around Europe take it off the shelves Mm. so you need to get it right Mm. and you're sitting in a local authority you're probably not going to do that you need a, a national body now they've set up this office for product standards which is a good thing but clearly it doesn't have the resources to do this work and so.
0: And a third, you said, of local <coughs> authorities do no product testing at all.
1: Yeah, we did a Freedom of Information request, and around a third of councils had not spent any money in the last five years on chemical, product chemical testing.
0: So it's not risk based, it's money based. Yeah.
1: It's, I mean, it's complete chance based. And it has an important social justice element as well, because ultimately, if you buy from a big brand, you know, you would hope that that big brand has some control on the supply chain and actually is maybe doing some of their own tests at these labs if you buy from a market from a pound store you know you know none of these things are necessarily happening and uh, you know i've seen a container load come from china and go straight into a shop those things are not being checked so, those and so the poorer the people poorer people you know if you're if you just say well i'm only going to go to these big shops then you know you're probably going to be okay although even then some toys have been found at some of the big brands that have broken and the law. The
0: slime on Hamleys, yeah. Yeah,
1: and so, you know, it's not even you're not even fully protected, but you're clearly much less protected. You're going to find, you know, you're going to go in there, you're going to get flooring materials which are going to leach phthalates which have been banned. You're going to get toys that leach phthalates that can be banned. It's really not a just system. It's not an effective system. It very clearly doesn't work, but the government is not really addressing it.
0: What can we do to stop these toxic chemicals getting into our homes, our cosmetics, and our children's playthings? I asked Michael whether we might all need to brush up on our chemistry and start deciphering the scientific jargon, and could we perhaps get some labelling on these products?
1: The first point that we would take from a chemtrust point of view is that we should get the chemical off the market anyway and out of the products, because it shouldn't be the job of the consumer to do that, but there are times when when labelling can be useful. Cosmetics do have quite good labels. They you can also see uh, Teflon or PTFE in there, which actually means
0: tell us why Teflons a problem. Well,
1: there's a group, whole group of chemicals called polyfluorinated compounds, and these were used in nonstick pans, ski wax. Coatings of paper food contact material, ski wax. wax, Oh, okay. Um, And they're you know they're very slippery, sticky, and they last a long time, and they are all the way around the world. And some years ago, uh, one of the manufacturers admitted, actually, oh yeah, we found them in all the blood stocks in the world of human blood. And so you've got a group of chemicals. Again, you're dealing with thousands of chemicals. There's global action happening on two of them, and so you get these chemicals, and they are one of the places they're used is in cosmetics because it makes it look nice and shiny and nice and smooth uh, and you can see that on ingredients lists. So on other uses you can't see
0: it. And what, just tell me what that chemical is so I can go away and have a look. It's, <laughs>
1: you, you need to find something with fluorine in it. So fluorine. it might be down as PTFE or it could be a range of different... The trick is to anything that says fluoro somewhere in it avoid. is, is, is a void. Okay. But it's, it's bizarre that it's there. The,
2: the thing that we learned uh, particularly on the furniture was that manufacturers found a way how to comply with the furniture regulations, going with the cheapest cost. Okay. And that's by adding fire retardants. So as soon as kind of the studies are done, which are taking time to find it that they might have a potentially effect on a human environment, then it's going to restriction, manufacturers got enough time to prepare another substitution, which then is again put it on the market or replaced within five, ten years. And then we're going circles, circles that there is no way actually to control that.
0: So there's a very big game of cat and mouse going on between yes. regulation and the industry. Yep.
2: So one thing for fire at least, which would kind of address all those issues, is get fire toxicity regulated, which yep. at the end of the day is looking at human's life yep. and environment, and then in that way we can find out everything what actually will actually potentially have and be released.
0: These are just two potential solutions which could help reduce our exposure to toxic chemicals in our everyday lives. We should only be exposed to these chemicals when absolutely necessary, and everybody should have enough knowledge to make informed decisions about the products they buy. Our report on toxic chemicals in everyday use will be published in the next couple of months. Until then, you can follow our inquiry by clicking on the link in the description and see all the evidence we've received on this fascinating and important topic. That's all for this episode, but tune in next time when we'll be talking about planetary health. I'm Mary Cray, and you've been listening to Emergency on Planet Earth. Emergency on Planet Earth was presented by Mary Cray and produced by San Airy. The music was Cold Funk by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks to all our guests this week Professor Anna Steck, Dr Michael Warhurst, Dr Duncan Campbell, and Therese Lilliger.